Ecclesiastes 11 is our passage. So you can turn there. We're going to read these verses together in two chunks, and then we'll reference them throughout the sermon tonight. Uh, the title of this sermon, I kind of went back and forth on what to title it. I don't know if you've noticed this, but I usually don't title sermons. Never in my life have I titled sermons, but uh, I've done it with Ecclesiastes. And so we're going with human limitations. We're talking about human limitations tonight. So I want to start off and acknowledge that human beings are capable of some really, really remarkable amazing things. I just want to acknowledge that at the get-go. Human beings are remarkably capable, both in their ability to think and problem-solve and in their physical uh, prowess and athletic abilities. And so, just thinking about human ingenuity, the Mars rover is an amazing thing. I don't know if you just stopped to think about it, but it's an absolutely amazing thing that human beings built a robot, that's amazing, and then they took that robot and they exploded it into outer space in one piece, that's an amazing thing, and they launched it at the right time from the right place at the right angle, charting all the right things out so that it would land on Mars. And then from Earth, they can talk to it and control it and take pictures and take pictures of itself. It's absolutely amazing. And I was, I was looking up a picture of the Mars rover, and I started to look at some of our other satellites and things that we have out in space. It just blows your mind what human beings are capable of. Absolutely remarkable. Uh, athletically, human beings are capable of amazing things. I don't know if you've ever heard of something called the Barkley Marathons. Uh, it's a race in Tennessee. It is one of the quirkiest, oddest endurance races in the world. And you can look up the details. It's really, really interesting. The race begins when a man lights a cigarette. And so in this picture, if you look really closely, this guy has a cigarette down in his hand and he's about to light it. And when he lights it, the race starts. In the race, if you want to compete, all you have to do, all you have to do in the mountains of Tennessee is run a 20-mile race five times in less than 60 hours. That's all you got to do. Barkley Marathons. Started in this format in 1995. They only allow 40 runners a year to participate. So they cap the participants at 40. So since 1995, there's 1,160 people who have run only 20 have finished. Only 20. Since 2017, no one has finished. Until this year, and three people finished. It was a record-breaking year, a banner year for the Barkley Marathons. It's an amazing endurance race, and you can look up the details, and you can look up Ironman competitions and Spartan competitions. I mean, human beings are capable of absolutely amazing things. Collectively and individually, we know a lot. We've learned a lot as human beings, and we're capable of some amazing things, but we don't know everything, and we can't do anything. We have limits. And so I could give you lots of examples of this, but there's a fascinating story that's been in the news the last couple of weeks. A group of scientists and tech experts 
have penned an open letter to people who are developing AI, artificial intelligence technology, and they basically said, you need to pump the brakes. You need to stop what you're doing for six months because what you're creating, we're not ready to handle, and you need to dial it back. And other people say, oh, they're just overreacting, they're fear mongers, they just want us to stop so they can keep going and they'll get ahead and there's all sorts of arguing. But there's a group of people saying, look, we know a lot, we know enough to make artificial intelligence computer systems, but we don't know what's going to happen with those systems. And maybe we ought to think this through a little bit, we don't know everything. The Mars rover is an amazing example, but I started to look at some of the other satellites that we've sent out in the Voyager satellite that is the only object that has ever gone outside of our solar system into interstellar space. I mean, for all of the vastness of the galaxies in the universe, we have sent one rinky-dink satellite outside of our own solar system. We haven't even scratched the surface. And you can say, well, look at us, Mars rover, that's pretty impressive, that's pretty cool. But the universe is a lot bigger than Earth to Mars. And there's a lot out there that we're just not able to do. Athletes. I thought about athletes, about human limitations. Uh, the world record in the 100 meters is currently held by Usain Bolt. It's 9.58 seconds. Anybody think you could get close to that? 9.58? Anybody think that 9.58 will be the world record in 10 years? Probably not. Does anybody think the world record will be 2.38? Probably not. I mean, records are meant to be broken, but at some point you say human beings have limits. Could we run it in 9.56, 9.5 even? Maybe. Could we run it in 2? No. There's some things we don't know. There's some things that we can't do. And the book of Ecclesiastes has a word for all of these limitations. You know what the word is? Vanity. Not meaningless, but the Hebrew word is hebel, and it means smoke, mist, breath, vapor, something that is here, and you see it, and it's real, but as soon as you try to grab it or touch it or hold on to it, it's gone. Human limitations. Now, there's a logic for some people who think about the brevity of life and the smallness of human beings and all of our limitations. And there's a temptation for some people to say, if we're so hebel, if our lives are marked by vanity, then does it really matter? Does anything really matter? I mean, if we're here and then we're gone, what difference does it make? In the book of Ecclesiastes, counters that over and over and over and over again saying it really does matter how you live your life you really should seek to be a wise person you really should seek to honor the lord with your life in fact the logic of ecclesiastes is not that something short is worthless but that because it's so short it has greater value and you should be more serious about it because your vain hebel brief life lived under the sun, is racing by. You're under the sun, you're on the clock, and you're running quickly, fastly, towards the day of judgment, and you should be ready for that. So, here's an opening quote from Sidney Greedness as we think about uh, Ecclesiastes 11. He says, We live in a world with many uncertainties because we don't know. 
There's things we don't know. How should we live in such a precarious world? Well, the teacher admonishes, since we do not know what God will prosper, use every opportunity to work boldly, but wisely. And I like Greedness's summary statement there. I will say this to you. When Greedness makes this statement, he's only looking at verse 1 to 6 in his commentary. And he's summarizing only Ecclesiastes 11, 1 to 6. And we are adding on 7, 8, 9, 10 to our consideration. And so I'm going to take the kernel of what Greedness is saying, and then we're going to add one idea to it. Here's our summary statement. Human beings are called to live lives of, number one, action, and number two, joy. Our lives should be marked by taking action, and our lives should be marked by joy. Before we read, let me say this about our passage, Ecclesiastes 11. This is a prime place in the Bible where if you try to parachute in and read one verse without reading what's around it, you're going to either be confused or you're probably going to come up with something crazy that's not even close to right. When you look at this section up close in the individual pieces, there's some verses that leave you scratching your head and you think, I, what in the world is he talking about? Like just in the book already, this makes no sense. But when you step back from this chapter and you see it as a whole, I think it's clear that what he's saying is our lives under the sun, our brief lives should be marked by number one, action, and number two, joy. So let's read the first six verses. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you, uh, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way, the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, whether both alike will be good. So let's try to make sense of those six verses. The preacher calls us to live a life of action. I think the whole thread that connects those six verses together is that your life should be marked by action. And I think when you break the pieces down, it begins to make a little bit more sense uh, on the whole. So we'll just take it a few verses at a time. He starts off talking about casting your bread on the waters. Casting your bread on the waters is likely a reference to overseas trade, which is a risky and a long-term investment strategy. Now, I try to be honest with you in Ecclesiastes like I'm honest with our men at Emmanuel Institute as we go through the book of Revelation, and I try to tell you when there's things that I'm maybe not or people are not entirely settled on. And I'll be honest with you, commentators are all over the map uh, when it comes to what does it mean to cast your bread upon the waters. And there's all sorts of fanciful theories. There's even theories that boil down to what you think about when you take your kids to the duck pond and you take an old loaf of bread and you throw the bread out there. 
How many of you go to the duck pond and you throw your bread on the water and you expect to get it back? You don't expect to get it back. You really don't want it back after it's been in the duck pond. And people try to play off of that and come up with all sorts of ideas about what the preacher's talking about. But I think it's pretty obvious in the context that what he's talking about is business. What he's about to talk about relates to business. And I think he's talking about business here. And he's saying, look, you should invest some money on this overseas venture. And it's risky. And it's a long-term strategy, but you should go ahead and do it. And so just if you think about the Old Testament, you might look at 1 Kings 10, verse 22. talks about Solomon having ships that went and took goods and then brought gold back. And if you read that verse, it says that it took three years for the ships to go and do business and then come back. Three years. So you invested a lot of money in that ship and then you sent it off on the waters and then you got it back, but it was three years later. It was risky and it was a long-term investment strategy. You read about some of the other kings who had business ventures to build fleets of ships and some of those ships never left the harbor they were destroyed for different reasons by the lord before they ever went on any venture and in the ancient world uh, certainly in old testament times this was a risky business venture and it was a long-term strategy and if you're thinking about investing your money in this you might say you know i don't know all the things that could go wrong out on the seas I, don't, I can't plan for all the contingencies, and I can't control the wind, and I can't control the pirates, and I can't control leaks on the ship when it's gone, and if I get any payoff, it's going to be years down the road, and for all I know, the whole thing might go under. And I think what the preacher is saying is, go for it. Don't be passive in life. Take action. Now, he's using a business example and something that's risky and it's a long-term payback, but he's saying to people, don't just be timid and scared all the way through life. At some point, you've got to go for it. You've got to take action. Now, he says this next. He talks about giving portions to seven or eight, which I think is a reference to diversification. It's a risk-averse and a wise investment strategy. You understand that seven is a full number in the Hebrew mind. So when he says you ought to give portions to seven, he's saying you ought to spread your money around. You probably shouldn't take your entire 401k and invest it in that ship that's going to be gone for three years and might sink. You should invest some in that, maybe. You should take some action, but don't be a fool. Don't risk everything. Diversify. Give portions to seven. Why not give them to eight? Go for it, but don't be a total fool. In today's uh, culture in the United States, we would say, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Why don't you give portions to seven or to eight? Don't be passive. Don't be inactive. But go for it. But as you go for it, use your mind and be wise. Then he talks about certainties of life. And I think what he's saying is that the certainties of life should not prevent us from taking action. There's some things in life that are certain. You can't change them. They're just what they are. And you, in your limited power, you can't do anything about it. And so we live in West Texas. We don't have a lot of trees or a lot of rain clouds. You're going to have to take my word on this. But the preacher's right when he says if there's a rain cloud, guess what rain clouds do? 
Well, in Odessa, they split and they go around Odessa. But most places, rain clouds dump rain. They're rain clouds. You can't stop that. And then he talks about a tree. And this is sort of like you're thinking to yourself, did anybody hear this tree fall when it fell to the north or the south? Did it really happen? What's going on? Is he trying to play with my mind? No, he's just saying if a tree falls down, there it is. There's no really not anything you can do about it. Some things just are certain. And he talks about this man who goes out and he's, he's watching the wind. He spends so much time watching the wind, he never sows his crop. And he's looking at the clouds so much that he's never going to reap anything. And there's certainties in life that you can't do anything about. And those certainties cannot stop you from taking action. You just need to know some things are certain in life. There is no perfect time to start, so you just have to start. Then he talks about uncertainties in life. The uncertainties of life should not prevent us from taking action. So the certainties are rain clouds drop rain and trees fall and that's where they're at. And there's no perfect time to start anything. So you got to just jump in and go at some point. But there's also uncertainties that we're not quite sure about. And the prime example he gives is conception. And he says, you know, there's some mystery involved in that, isn't there? Now we have what? 2,500, 27, 2,800, depending on who you think wrote this and when. Years of medical experience on top of the preacher. And we know a lot more about conception. They weren't fools. They weren't stupid. They understood how babies were made. We think of ancient people sometimes as if they were dumb people walking around. They did amazing things. They built pyramids and traveled the world and mapped stars and did all kinds of stuff. They're smart people. They understood. But they also understood there's some things we don't know. And guess what? Some 2,000 years later, there's still some things we don't know. There's still some things medically with life and conception and illness and wellness and all of these things. We just, we, we know a lot, but we don't know everything. There's uncertainties in life. Look what he says in verse 5. At the end, he says, you don't know the work of God who makes everything. He's the creator. Psalm 139 he knows everything. Nothing hides in the darkness from him. He knows your days. They're written in his book before you ever live them. He knows the words on your tongue before you ever speak them. He knows everything. You don't know everything. His ways are higher than your ways. And you need to acknowledge this. You need to acknowledge that there's some uncertainty in life. You don't always understand what God is up to in any given situation. There are some things that are certain. You can't change them. There's some things that are uncertain, and there's not anything you can do about your lack of knowledge. And in the face of that, you have to be a wise person, but you shouldn't be a timid person. You shouldn't just hold back all the time. You should take action. Sow your seed. Reap your crop. Some things are certain. Some things are uncertain. When you read these verses together, you understand in your life, there's no avoiding risk. That's what the preacher's saying to you. If you don't take action because you're scared, there's risk. Because you might miss the prime opportunity to act. And that window might close and be gone. So there's risk if you do nothing. 
But he's also honest enough to sort of lay it out before us and say, well, if you act now, there's also risk. There's risk in acting. There's risk in not acting. There's risk. And Americans hate risk. We don't like things to be uncertain. We like to control things. We like everything to be predictable. We like it all to be in its place. Here's the reality. There's some things that are certain and you can't do anything to change them. And there's some things that are uncertain and I, I can't help you figure it all out. And I think the answer is to be wise people and to take action and to trust God who can do anything and who does know everything. In this series, I've quoted a lot of songs. I've quoted a lot of songs in this series that I never thought I would quote in a sermon because there's a lot of wisdom in secular music where people figure out parts of Ecclesiastes because some of it, if you think long enough, you come to some of these conclusions. So I'm not going to quote a song, but I'm going to quote a movie that I've never quoted in a sermon before. Are you ready for this? Ferris Bueller. Life moves pretty fast, and if you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. And in Ferris's mind, that means skip school, go to a parade, drive dad's car all around town, have a good time, all the rest of it. What the preacher is saying to you in context is, you know what? Your life moves pretty fast. You live under the sun. And it's coming around tomorrow just as fast as it went around today. And your life is hebel. It's smoke. So if you sit around and do nothing because you're afraid and timid and you're paralyzed by all the certainties you can't change and the uncertainties you can't figure out, guess what? It's going to pass you by. So you need to take action, and you need to be wise as you take action. Greedness says this, the passage urges us precisely because of the uncertainties, because of the uncertainties, precisely because you don't know what God will prosper. Use every opportunity to work boldly but wisely and entrust the results to the hands of Almighty God, who, through Jesus Christ, is our Father in heaven. He will take care of us. Now, a lot of the examples there relate to business, but they can be applied to other areas of life, and we'll do that as we give conclusion and application. First, let's talk about verse 7, 8, 9, and 10. Let's read these verses together. Light is sweet, and it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. So here's the big idea of this last section of chapter 11. The preacher calls us to live a life of joy, to be joyful people, people who take action and people who are joyful. So we'll break this down into a couple of pieces. He starts off talking about light and darkness. And most of the commentators agree that when he talks about light, he's talking about life. And when he talks about darkness, he's talking about death. So we're talking about life and death. You cannot go very far in Ecclesiastes without bumping into the idea of death. 
right? Until I die, we just sang, let redeeming love be my theme. And the preacher, if he was here, would be echoing, he would add an echo to that and say, you are going to die. You are going to die. You are going to die. And he gives us an echo right here. And he's talking about light, life, darkness, death. And I think what he's saying to us is this. It does not matter how long you spend under the sun. If you spend nine minutes under the sun and then you die, or if you spend 90 years under the sun and then you die, compared to eternity, those are both very short. There's no difference in them compared to eternity. And he talks about there will be a few days of light and there will be many days of darkness. Now that doesn't mean the few days of light are worthless. It just means they're few. So one way for you to think about this and the point the preacher's trying to make is not to think about eternity. Eternity's hard for us to think about, right? We're finite, and so to think about something that's eternal, it just hurts your brain and you don't have a, a frame of reference. So let's just boil it down to your life. And I want you to think for a minute about the very best number one top vacation that you ever went on. You don't need to tell us about it. Some of you are thinking about Kermit, Texas, or Crane, Texas, or McCamey, Texas. I don't know what you're thinking about. you got a place in mind. You can see it. You can hear it. You can smell it. Maybe you can feel the sand, or you can feel the river, or the whatever. You can imagine being there. Tonight, you're here. Not there. I bet none of you, in thinking about your favorite vacation spot, thought about Crane or Kermit or McCamey or this room. You're thinking about some other place. You're not there now. You were there, but you didn't stay, did you? Does that mean that it was wasted? You didn't stay there forever? No, you're just there for a short time, right? But it was good. Just because it was short doesn't mean it wasn't good. And that's the point the preacher's making about your life. He's comparing the whole span of your life to eternity. And he's saying, it might be short. doesn't mean it's meaningless. It doesn't mean it's a waste. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be serious about it. It can still be a good thing. Days of light and life. Days of darkness and death. Look at what he says in verse 8. If a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. Rejoice in your days. That word rejoice is a Bible word, Old Testament and New Testament. There's a Hebrew word for it and a Greek word for it. And it literally means to worship with joy. That's what it means to rejoice. Worship God and do it with joy. Not just when you come sing hymns in this room on Wednesday night or songs on Sunday morning or you're jamming out on the radio in your car and you're singing. But the whole of your life, Worship God and do it with joy. Preacher says we will give an account. I want you to think about this for how we enjoyed the gift of life. This is, I think, one of the most striking thoughts we've come across in the book of Ecclesiastes. Look at Ecclesiastes 11 verse 9. 
Rejoice. There's that word again. Rejoice. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you. Joy is in your heart in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart in the sight of your eyes. That doesn't mean just follow your heart and do whatever you want. But that means be a joyful person. Be happy. Enjoy life. Don't be miserable. Don't be grouchy all of the time. But know, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Now the Hebrew here, commentators tell us, is kind of awkward. And so there's two ways you can take it. And you're smart people, you can pick one of the two ways. And I'll tell you the way that I think fits the context of the passage best. One way you could take this verse, this part about, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. You could take that as like your parents talking to you when you're a junior, senior in high school, and they're sending you out with your friends on a Friday night, and they say, hey, you guys have fun. (laughs) Not too much fun. Fun, but not too much. That could be what the preacher's saying. Enjoy your life, have fun, but just remember, you're going to have to face judgment, so don't have too much fun. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. I think what the preacher is saying is, based on these commands to rejoice, and they are commands, rejoice, rejoice, worship with joy, rejoice. I think what he's saying is, you have a brief life, you should live it, you should take action, don't be passive, don't sit back and just wait for everything to be perfect, you just got to live, you got to go, and you got to be joyful, and get this, you are going to give an account Not only for what you did, but for whether or not you were joyful in doing it. I think that's the point of what the preacher is trying to say to us. And I'll give you just a few reasons why. One of the reasons is the entirety of the book of Psalms. One time in my personal Bible reading, I went through the book of Psalms and I marked all of the verses in the book of Psalms where we are commanded to feel a certain way. Guess what? There's a lot of them. The book of Psalms does not just tell you to sing and to do this and to do that and do that. It also tells you to feel certain things. Now, Americans think to ourselves, feelings, I can't control my feelings. If you watched a Disney movie, feelings just happen to you and they just come up and they well up within you and there's not anything you can do about them. And the The book of Psalms says you should feel this way or you should feel that way. You should feel different things. We're commanded to feel those things. Several years ago, we worked through as a church the book of Philippians. And one of the key words in the book of Philippians is rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Paul keeps saying it over and over and over. He loved those people in Philippi. He loved that church. And he keeps saying to them on repeat, you need to be people who rejoice. Worship with joy. He's telling them in that book how to feel. One more verse that I have in mind here. Take your Bible and look at Deuteronomy chapter 28. Throughout this study of Ecclesiastes, I've tried to drum in your head. This is not the first book in the Bible and it's not the last book in the Bible. Look at Deuteronomy 28. And let's read verse 47 and 48. This is a section where Moses has promised the people blessings if they obey. 
And he's also promising or warning them about curses if they disobey. Deuteronomy 28, 47. Hypothetically, Moses says this, because you did not serve the Lord your God with what? Joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, thirst, nakedness, lacking everything. And he'll put a yoke of iron on your neck until he's destroyed you. He keeps... He continues, he says, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you don't understand, hard-faced nation. They will not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It will eat the offspring of your cattle, the fruit of your ground until you're destroyed. won't leave you any grain, wine, oil, the increase of your herds or young flock until they've cursed you to perish, caused you to perish. That was first Assyria and then it was Babylon. Assyria for the northern kingdom and Babylon for the southern kingdom. And part of the issue that Moses said hundreds of years before it ever happened is the problem is not just that you didn't serve the Lord, it's that you didn't serve the Lord with joyfulness and gladness. They didn't serve the Lord. And that was a problem. But it wasn't just a problem of their actions, it was also a problem of their heart and their emotions. They did not serve the Lord with joyfulness or gladness. We will give an account for how we enjoyed the gift of life. If you're a parent or a grandparent, you know this. You know this from Christmas morning when you give your kids a gift and you're so excited for them to open it and they get really excited when they open it and then they put the gift aside and they do what? First they play with the box And that lasts about six minutes, maybe. And then the box goes away. And then they look at you and they say, what? I'm bored. I think I just gave you a gift. Can't you just enjoy it? Just enjoy it. I gave it to you. I didn't give it to you because I hate you. I love you. And I gave you this gift and I want you to enjoy it. And you just want to grab your kid on Christmas morning by the shirt collars and shake them and say, have fun with that present. What's the matter with you? We will give an account for how we enjoyed the gift of life. Lastly, life is short, Hebel, and we should be joyful people. Think about what we've seen in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There's a time for everything. Laughing and crying. Rejoicing and mourning. There's a time for everything. Ecclesiastes has acknowledged that. Uh, Chapter 7. One of the things in chapter 7 when the preacher saying this is better than that. He says it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of laughing. And feasting and rejoicing. We talked about that. How is it better? Why is it better? Well it's better in the sense that you number your days better. When you're at a funeral and you're face to face with death. And grief and loss. It was better in that sense. So the book of Ecclesiastes is not simplistic, but look what he says in verse 10. Remove vexation from your heart, put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Now next week we're going to get into the youth part as we look at the first part of chapter 12. But he's saying to us, your life is vanity. Not that it's meaningless, it's that it's very short. Just don't have much of it. 
compared to eternity. So one of the things that you ought to do is remove vexation and as, as much as possible put away pain. Life is short. We should be joyful people. So let me give you some concluding thoughts, just some application, and we'll be done. Number one, when you read this passage, you should come away and you should recognize your limits. You are a creature, not the creator. You are finite, not infinite. God is big. God is powerful. God knows everything. You are small. You are weak. You don't know much. You should just be honest about that. There are things in life that are certain. You can't change them. There's things in life that are uncertain. You're never going to be able to know them beforehand. You're limited. And you have to acknowledge that. And so many of us try to go through life pretending like we don't have limits. Like we can do anything. That we can know everything. And we can't. On either account. We're limited. God is unlimited. So recognize your limits. Number two. As believers we're called to joyful gospel action. And I want to take the ideas about business that are presented in the early part of chapter 11. And I just want you to think about the gospel and evangelism and missions. When we were talking about the specifics of business, we said, look, there's, there's things that are risky and there's things that have a long-term payout and you ought to jump in and do those things. You ought to not hold back and be scared or timid because you don't know the outcome and you can't control the outcome. But you also ought to be wise in how you do it. Don't be a fool. Diversify. And I just want you to think with me about one of the parables Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus said in Matthew 13, there's a farmer. And he had seed to sow. And he went out and he started to broadcast sow his seed. And some of it fell on the path. Just straight away fell on the path. And the birds came and they just took it. It was gone. Some of it fell on the rocky soil where it popped up to life pretty quick because the rocky soil was warm and good for germination, but it was rocky and it was hard for the roots to grow. So when the sun came out, it just it killed the plant because it had no root and it, it didn't do anything. Some of the seed fell amongst the thorns. And it popped up initially, but the thorns were there and they choked it out and the light couldn't get in and it just suffocated it and nothing happened with that plant. But some of it fell on good soil and it grew and it produced a crop and there was a harvest and there was multiplication. So I just want you to think with me about us sharing the gospel. You can think about this like when you talk to your coworkers, you can think about this when you talk to your kids, you can think about this when we share the gospel on an Easter Sunday, any context, any setting where you're sharing the gospel with somebody. There's some things you know, there are certainties when you start sharing the gospel. You know what some of those certainties are? Some people are going to get mad at you. That's a certainty. It's a fact. You can't do anything to change it. And some people, here's another certainty. Some people are going to hear what you say and the Spirit of God's going to blow on their heart like the wind and give them eyes to see the truth and their eyes that were closed to the truth of the glory of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ are going to be opened and they're going to respond. You're going to plant and you're going to water and God's going to give the growth. 
People are going to be saved because the gospel is powerful. God uses the preaching and the sharing of the gospel to save sinners. Those are both certainties. Some people are going to make a response. This is another certainty. They're going to make a response to Jesus. They're going to come to church for two weeks, and then you're never going to see them again. That's going to happen. Those are realities as Jesus lays the parable out. So what are we going to do? We could step back and say, you know, doesn't seem like I have a lot of control over this situation. I mean, this guy might get mad at me. I don't know. This guy might get saved. That'd be pretty cool. But this guy might, he might like trick me and lie to me and say he got saved, but then he's not going to come. And I, I can't control any of that. So maybe I'll just step back and be passive and inactive and not do any of it. And the preacher would say, no, you ought to go for it. You ought to go for it. You ought to open your mouth. And there are certainties that you can't control. And there's uncertainties. Because you don't know which one of those people is going to respond in a different way. That's not your business. That's God's business. To change hearts. You'd be surprised. I've been surprised as a pastor. People that I've sat down with and shared the gospel with. And I've thought to myself. I'll just be honest with you. I've thought, that is a really good gospel presentation. This is probably the next Billy Graham right here. Oh, I'm so excited. And guess what? They just, it's like you're talking to a wall. I've sat down with other people. People who are a part of this church, active and serving upstairs right now. And I've shared the gospel with them and I've thought, that was the biggest waste of time in my whole life. That was ridiculous. I wish I had those 20 minutes back. Ridiculous. And God used it in their life. And they got saved. Genuinely, radically saved. Love the Lord, serve the Lord, faithful with their families, faithful in this church. There's certainties and there's uncertainties. And in the face of that, you just got to take action. You got to say, my job is to plant, my job is to water. God, it's your job to give the growth. And I've given you the verse here in 1 Corinthians 3 about that. When it comes to evangelism, you can be paralyzed. You can say nothing out of frustration with the certainties and fear of the uncertainties, or you can just be obedient and trust God to give the growth where he sees fit. One last thought for you as we think about joy. Gratitude is essential to our experience of joy. I want to tell you a story, and then I want to tie it back to Ecclesiastes. Gratitude is essential to our experience of joy. There's a man named John Stott. He's an amazing theologian, uh, an Englishman. He passed away several years ago. And I read a story about him this week that I had never come across, never heard, uh, thought I knew a lot about John Stott. I've never come across this story. He used to study uh, every morning in his office, in his study, and he had a research assistant, and one of the jobs of his research assistant was that at 11 o'clock, John Stott wanted a cup of coffee. And so at 11 o'clock, research assistant, walk in, cup of coffee, just the way he likes it, uh, he was always busy and studying and writing and scribbling away, and the research assistant really didn't want to bother him, so research assistant, this man would come in, and he'd put the coffee down, and he'd leave, and every single time he walked in and dropped that coffee off in front of John Stott at 11 o'clock, John Stott would mutter under his breath, I'm not worthy. And he was talking about getting a cup of coffee. He'd say, I'm not worthy. 
And this went on and it went on and it went on. And at some point, the research assistant, maybe he was grouchy because he was having to make coffee or something, I don't know. But the research assistant said, this is kind of stupid that you say that every day. And I'm going to say something to him about it. So he went in, 11 o'clock, coffee just the way he wanted it, put it down, started to walk off quietly, and under his breath said, I'm not worthy. And the research assistant said, yes, you are. And John Stott said, quote, you don't have your theology of grace right. And the research assistant said, it's just a cup of coffee. I'm not worthy. Yes, you are. You don't have your theology of grace right. It's just a cup of coffee. And this is what Stott said. I love it. I've thought about this all week long. He said, it's the thin edge of a wedge. It's the thin edge of a wedge. Think about the little triangle you use to hold a a door open, a wedge. Okay? It's the thin end. That's the cup of coffee. It's a little bitty thing. But it's really the same as the big stuff. It's just the thin end. It's the thin edge of a wedge. It's not the biggest thing in the world. But I'm not worthy of any of it. The big, huge things like salvation and eternity and the Spirit of God in my life and the Word of God where I can read it, I'm not worthy of that. And I'm also not worthy of the little thing, the cup of coffee. That's gratitude. My grandma was named Geneva Lummis, great-grandma, Geneva Lummis. And she lived with us for a couple years when I was in high school. She drank coffee. Uh, admittedly, she's not the theologian John Stott was, but I promise you this, every cup of coffee the woman ever drank, every cup, she would take a sip and say, I think that's the best cup of coffee I've ever had in my life. And as a high school student, I can't tell you how much that annoyed me. And I thought, would you just pipe down? It's just a cup of coffee. That was gratitude, right? Not the same theological depth as John Stott, but it was a heart of gratitude. I'm not worthy. That's amazing. And I'm thankful for it. If you can't be grateful for the thin edge of the wedge, you won't be grateful for the big end, the fat end. You won't be grateful for anything. And if you can't be grateful for anything, you won't have your theology of grace right, and joy will be impossible for you. Absolutely impossible. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Let's just take this all the way to the beginning of Ecclesiastes. What can man gain for all of his toil under the sun? Vanity, vanity, it's all vanity. Life is short. It's racing by. You're under the sun. You're on the clock. What can man gain for all of his toil under the sun? One of the first concrete answers we gave to that question as we moved through the book of Ecclesiastes was this. Life itself is not gain, but it is a gift. And you should be thankful for it Chapter 11 adds to that and says not only should you be thankful for it, but you should live a life of action 
and you should live a life of joy. Father, we stop as your people tonight, and we thank you for your word. Um, We're not worthy to read it, to have it. Forgive us when we take it for granted. Forgive us when we're bored with it. Forgive us when we're frustrated by the difficulty in mining certain things out of it. Forgive us when we understand it perfectly well and we don't rightly apply it to our lives. Father, we do pray that you would help us to have our theology of grace right, that we would recognize your holiness, we would recognize your omnipotence, we would recognize your omniscience, and we would recognize our limits, our smallness, our creatureliness. Father, beyond that, that we would recognize our sinfulness, our utter unworthiness to have any, any relationship with you. And we thank you that in your kindness and your mercy, not only have you given us life, but you've given us your son. And he lived for us and he died for us and he rose from the grave and he ascended to heaven and he's promised to come back for us. And for all of these things, we're unworthy, but we're thankful. We pray that you would help us to be grateful, thankful, joyful people who don't sit around on this good news about salvation in Jesus, who don't keep it to ourselves, who don't hoard our resources out of fear, but who are bold in taking action to share the gospel and bold in giving money to send missionaries. Father, help us to be people of action. Help us to be people of joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.